So I want to start with a question. Who is Jesus? It might be silly to ask in this type of setting, but who is Jesus? That is a question that people have been asking for 2,000 years. Ever since the incarnation and the second person of the triune God physically stepped into this world, taking on humanity, living, dying, and arising and ascending to his throne in glory as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords, the world has had to reckon with Jesus Christ, this Nazarene carpenter from Galilee. So what about you this morning? As you sit there and you think about that question, how would you answer that? Who do you think Jesus was? Or should I say, who do you think Jesus is? And the answer to that question, I would argue, has cosmic implications. Because if he's anywhere close to what the Bible says about him, then how you answer that question has enormous implications. So we'd better look at God's inerrant word to find some answers this morning. So join me in your copy of the Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now we've been studying through Mark for a while and reached a part uh, of, God, of Mark's unfolding story here of Jesus' earthly ministry where folks had begun to ask, who is this Jesus? That was a question that was floating around. Uh, even the king at the time, King Herod, had joined in to that that bewildered number, saying, who is Jesus? And in chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, you can see some of this laid out. It says, some said, he's John the Baptist, been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Who is Jesus? That's the question on their minds. This, this section of Mark, and really if you compare Mark to the other Gospels, you'll see that there's questions like this before our passage, and then following our passage in Luke, there's more questions about who do people say that I am? Who do the disciples say that I am? There's these questions. Who is Jesus? Now earlier in chapter 6, he had sent out his 12 apostles to minister in his name. Uh, evidently, they had some success in their proclamation of Jesus because, as we'll see today, thousands of people set out to find this Jesus of whom they had spoke and in whose name they had cast out demons, they had healed the sick. Again, chapter 6, if you look at verse 12 and following, it says, so that they went out, that's the apostles, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. They did the same thing we're sent out to do. They carried the gospel to a lost world, making much of Jesus, so that people came searching for him. So may God grant that our lives have the same type of impact. Not that people say, oh, let me go listen to so-and-so or 
or I really like his stories, or I really like this or that, but Jesus, may that be the type of impact that we have. May the people that we meet and to whom we minister say like those who said in John 12, 22, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Show us Jesus. But what about that question that I mentioned? Who is he? And I think Mark's aim in giving us this miracle at this time in the flow of the, the uh, chapter 6 is to help us answer that question. He shows us who he is by some of the things that he does. So let's pray and then we're going to read our passage which is chapter 6 verses 30 through 44. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege to be together, united in the gospel. Help us now as we come to you in your word. Pray your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see, open our minds to understand. Turn on the light that we may see the greatness of the Lord Jesus. And Father, if any are in this room who have yet to truly behold him, to see him as the great treasure. I pray you'd open their eyes today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hear the word of God from Mark 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a, des a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of pieces, broken pieces, and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. And the Gospel of Matthew adds on to that. Five thousand men besides women and children. We thank the Lord for his word. You know, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all, five, all four of the Gospels. Maybe that means it's a, especially important that we understand it. 
And I think that this passage is meant to help us understand. And, to, and I think Jesus performed this, at, this miracle at that time for that crowd to help them to understand that he's more than a great teacher or a great healer. Matthew's gospel says he also healed uh, the sick in the crowd. He's more than a charismatic founder of a new religion. He's more than the bread man who meets our needs and fills our bellies. He is the all-satisfying bread of life. He's the Lord of glory. And I think this text is meant to help us to understand that. So we have this question in our mind, who is Jesus? And I think that we find at least four answers in this passage this morning. So if you're taking notes, we've got four points. One, two, three, four. Number one is Jesus is the compassionate one, verses 30 through 34. And so the text, it opens with the disciples uh, returning from what we might call a short-term mission trip. Uh, they were all fired up about what had taken place to come back and give the report to Jesus about what had happened. And him, knowing from personal experience the demands of ministry on the body, and on the mind, and on the emotions... Jesus shows concern for them. He cares for them when he says in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He says it's time to get away from it all and to recuperate for a spell. You know, laziness is sin, but rest is godly. Last time we were together, uh, we talked about Jesus taking a nap. In the back of a boat, right? Rest. Uh, he likes those naps. I like those naps too. Uh, so, so he says, let's rest. Like many of us might uh, do, uh, they head to the lake. And they get on a boat and they set sail for a quiet, relaxing place. However, there's, uh, like it is in many cases for gospel ministers, the rest would not come so easily. Finding a moment's rest was not quite so easy to find. So verse 33, we read, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I suppose they were sailing somewhere in the shallows, maybe the calm waters close to the shore. People were able to look out and recognize Jesus and even able to run ahead and to beat him to where he was going. Now how, would, how do you think we would respond to all of that? Tired, wore out, ready for some rest, on our way to go vacation, and then the crowds beat you there. The opportunities, the demands, they beat you there. When we get tired and wore out, are we in our most friendly and uh, state of mind? No, I'm not. In our, in our weariness, would, wouldn't we be tempted maybe to tell the crowd, sorry y'all, but we're closed. Uh, can, can a guy catch a break for crying out loud? I mean, go bother somebody else for a few days. We'll, we'll try this again later. Uh, we might be tempted to at least think like that. It probably wouldn't be one of our finer moments. But aren't you glad that Jesus is not like us in those moments. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, 
and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looks at this crowd. They're scurrying frantically to follow. He's the latest and the greatest big thing. And in every town he goes, he's being crowded and the people are flocking to see him and they want to touch him. They want to talk to him. They want him to do things for them. They want to hear how he's uh, putting the religious leaders in their place with his new teaching. And they're rushing to see him. But they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Is chasing after the latest thing that, that might have promise to satisfy. What they thought they needed with no shepherd to guide them in the ways of God. This, the Bible uses this sheep and shepherd language. That's, that's where we get the word pastor. You know, if you see a, a scene painted in a portrait of a, of a hillside and there's a flock of sheep there, we call that a pastoral scene. That's why it's it's a sheep and shepherd type of situation. And Jesus is using that language. They're shepherdless, defenseless, without a guide, just wandering aimlessly trying to find what they think they need. And he wasn't aggravated at them for upending his plans of rest or his ministry-worn disciples. Instead, he felt compassion for them. One uh, guy that I was reading while I studied, uh, J.C. Ryle, he put it this way. They were destitute of teachers. They had no guides but the blind scribes and the Pharisees. They had no spiritual food but man-made traditions. Thousands of immortal souls stood before our Lord, ignorant, helpless, and on the high road to ruin. It touched the gracious heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Well, at least we can answer uh, so far in this that He is the compassionate Lord that cares for the lost, that cares for the wandering souls that have yet to found, have yet to find true satisfaction, true meaning. Maybe you'd find yourself among the crowd that morning looking this way and looking that for something to satisfy your soul. Something maybe to give meaning to life. Meaning to your life. Value to your life. Something to prove that it all really matters. That you really matter. And I will tell you that Jesus' heart beats with compassion for you. He's the compassionate Lord. And then maybe to the rest of us who, who take the name of Jesus as our Lord and Master... We ought to ask ourselves, well, are we like our Lord in this? Does my heart beat with compassion towards others who are yet as sheep without a shepherd? He's the compassionate one. And then number two, we see next, Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. I think Mark intentionally includes certain words throughout his description of this scene to bring to mind Old Testament passages. He sprinkles a little something here, sprinkles a little something there. And if we know our Old Testament Bible, then it, it makes connections for us, like uh, how I've pointed out the sheep without a shepherd language. For example, Moses, uh, he used sheep without a shepherd to describe Israel. In, uh, in Numbers chapter 27, he's about to die 
The Lord is telling him to go up on the mountain and, and look at the promised land before he dies. He does not get to lead the people into it. And so Moses prays to the Lord that he would appoint another leader for the congregation of Israel. And he says, lest they be sheep who have no shepherd. And of course, Joshua would be the one that God provided to be that faithful shepherd after Moses. Later on, uh, during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, the kings are described as shepherds, shepherd kings to lead God's flock. Uh, we see that, that language in 1 Kings 22, for example. And then even later on, during the Babylonian captivity, uh, the Lord spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. How many read Ezekiel this week? He spoke to the prophet Ezekiel, calling his people scattered sheep, mistreated by faithless shepherds who were abusing them for selfish gain. And in that, in that situation... The Lord promised through Ezekiel that he would personally seek after and gather his sheep once more. And he would personally shepherd them. Uh, let's take a look there. If you have a Bible and uh, turn over to Ezekiel for a minute. This is a, this is a tremendous section in the Old Testament to help us recognize who Jesus is when he comes. He starts talking about sheep without a shepherd. And he's called the Good Shepherd. Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read a few uh, little sections here. You can follow along with me if you would like. This is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. And he says in verse 11 and following, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. Keep that picture in mind when we go back to Mark. I will feed them with good pasture. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will shepherd, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God. And if you scroll down to verse 22, the Lord continues to speak like this. And he adds an interesting twist to it. He says, I will rescue my flock. <clears throat> they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Now that's curious. The Lord had just said, I myself will be their shepherd. And now, some 500 years after David lived, he's saying, I will set up David, my servant, as their shepherd. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, 
I have spoken. 500 years after David. Who then, in this same passage, is both the Lord himself and someone among David's royal line? So the way he speaks about David, this is a descendant of David somehow. He's a royal descendant. So who is it that is both the Lord and a royal descendant of David that will be shepherd of the sheep? I wonder if that's why Mark, in our uh, chapter 6, verse 39, why he includes the detail that they will lie down or they sat down in green grass. Why... why add that description they didn't eat the grass I mean why add green grass does it what else does it do but to bring to mind passages like say Psalm 23 said the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures is Mark telling us something about who this Jesus is who's doing this miracle Later in his ministry, Jesus would finally say it plainly when he said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That good shepherd in Ezekiel 34, when the Lord said, I will gather my sheep, I will shepherd them, he's come in Mark 6. Here he is. That's what he's telling us. So let's connect these dots. This is a great reality that Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep, had come. And in, in his great compassion, he had taught the crowds. He had fed the crowds, as we'll read again in a minute. And then one day soon, on a hill far away, where stood an old rugged cross, he would lay down his life for his sheep. You know, we could simmer here all day long and just stew in the savor these uh, good juices and flavors of God's grace in Jesus. But there's still a lot more in this passage, so we better move along. Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep. Number three, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord of glory himself. Verse 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, we're country folks at my house. And uh, where there's a, a country house, uh, there's a dinner bell. Right? At least maybe not as common as it used to be, but there is at our house. And so when it comes time to call in the girls to come eat, my wife or I will go grab that little dinner bell and go to the door and start banging on it. Ding, 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 ding. And it's, it's interesting. It's amazing, actually, how fast the children will come when there's food involved. If I said, come, let's clean our rooms, well, not so fast, right? But Jesus' disciples must have heard that dinner bell ringing in their ears. They said, it's supper time, Jesus. Let's uh, press pause on this teaching moment and send the people away so that they can find some food. And I think the motivations are right. We should give them the benefit of the doubt here. We're maybe prone to be hard on the disciples because they seem to be so hard-headed. Uh, but I think their motivations were right. They were caring for the people. 
They were thinking ahead. They were making plans. It was a good plan. But Jesus' reply was not at all what they expected. Verse 37. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Now, has anyone ever said anything to you that just left you dumbfounded? Like, mouth kind of half open, eyes wide, like, what? Just, that was the last thing in the world I expected to hear and to hear you say, and, and there's just no reply, no words, just dumbfounded. That had to have been how this landed on the disciples. I'm sure they maybe tried to clean their ears out and look at each other like, what did he just say? Finally, they respond to him. Verse 37 continues. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Or as Philip, one of the disciples, as he put it in John 6, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarii is a, a day's wage. So I did the math. Take it for what it's worth. You might want to check it, but to earn 200 denarii, a paycheck of that size, one would have to work every single day, full days of work every single day from January 1st to July the 20th to get that kind of paycheck. So there was no way in the world that they would be able to do what Jesus was commanding. Even if they had that kind of money, where were they keeping all that food? No way in the world they could do what Jesus said. And I think that was exactly the point. I think that's why Jesus said it the way that he said it, was to highlight that. John 6, verse 6 says that Jesus was testing them. That he, it says that he already knew what he would do regarding the food. So the disciples needed to learn that their sufficiency was not found in their good planning, in their own strength, in their own resources. Their sufficiency and ours was standing on two feet right in front of their eyes talking to them. They just hadn't understood that yet. David Platt, he writes about their situation. He says it was like standing in front of Niagara Falls and still not being able to find anything to drink. No matter how big the need, Jesus is more than sufficient to meet it. And what the disciples still had failed to grasp up to that point is that they had daily beheld with their eyes, heard with their ears, and brushed shoulders up against the Lord God Almighty Himself. So Jesus, He, he continues now and he, he says, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they go and search and and they come back and say there's five with two fish. And Jesus says, hand them over. And then verse 39 will pick up. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and gave a set of blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Now, I don't really understand how this worked. But he had five barley loaves. And he starts breaking them and hand them to the 12 disciples and starts to start passing this out. 
and he keeps breaking those five loaves and keeps handing them more bread and it never ran out. It continues, and then he divided the two fish among them all. So this is not as if Jesus uh, found someone willing to share their lunch and that inspired everybody else to share their lunch too and everybody was able to eat. It's not what the text says. He took the two fish and, and divided it among the thousands. And they all ate and were satisfied, and then they took up 12 baskets full of pieces and of the fish. The giver of life, who fills the earth with food, the creator of fish and barley, of which those loaves were made, that is who stood in their midst. That's who was there. That's who this Jesus is. He's always greater. He's always more capable than we can imagine Him to be. And I think there's a connection, again, that we're supposed to be making. Mark is using language in a certain way to stir up our knowledge of God in the Old Testament. We're supposed to make a connection between the miraculous feeding here and what the Lord did in Moses' day during the Israelite desert wandering. You remember that time, don't you, when Egypt uh, was conquered by the Lord and Israel came out during the Exodus and then they're in a wilderness. It's a dry and barren place. I've sailed through the Suez Canal and could see uh, some of this as far as you could see. It's just nothing. It's, it's not uh, just fertile fields everywhere and cattle on every hill. It's just dry and barren. And yet, they were able to feed what some estimate is millions of Israelites. And they were able to water all these people and all their flocks. Where did all that come from? Springs of water bursting forth out of a dry rock. Remember that? Or manna raining down from the sky with the evening dew. How about the, the quail that the Lord used a, a wind to send quail by the hundreds of thousands and blow them right into the camp. And in the case of that quail, for example, in Numbers 11, uh, it records how the people, they'd been grumbling against the Lord and grumbling against Moses. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt and on and on they went. And so Moses, in that situation, he cries out to the Lord in response to their, their griping at him and he basically says, I quit. He says, take me out, Lord, because this people is too much for me to handle. He says, did I give birth to them that I should carry the burden of providing for them? He says, am, I, am I their daddy that I have to put up with this and, and provide for them? Where am I supposed to get meat to feed all these people? He says, even if we slaughtered all our herds, would that be enough? And he said to the Lord, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Ah. That's what the disciples said, isn't it? Isn't that how they respond when Jesus says, you feed them? Are you kidding me? How am I supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? How can we possibly feed all these people? And like he did when he sent the manna down from heaven with the dew, and like he did when he blew the, flo the flocks of quail in from the sea with the wind, Jesus took two fish and five barley loaves and fed thousands. Jesus did 
what only the Creator God can do. Jesus did what only the Lord of glory had ever done before. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord of glory Himself. And then moving on, there's one more answer to this question that we dare not miss. This is number four. Jesus is the bread of life. Now, verse 42 says that they all ate and they were satisfied. That is, of course, until the next morning when it was time for breakfast, right? And the Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle John's account kind of fills this out. He adds uh, uh, the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey might say. Uh, what happens the next morning? John adds all that detail in. So he records that after Jesus, he fed the crowds. He sent his disciples in a boat and said, y'all go to the other side. So they start sailing across the sea. Jesus stays behind, dismisses the crowd, and then goes up on the mountainside to pray and be alone with God. And the next day, the crowd went searching for Jesus again. They, they went to where he was, and he wasn't there anymore. So they went to where the disciples went, and they finally track him down on the other side of the sea. Jesus, of course, having walked across the water to get there. We didn't read that part. That's coming next week. And then John 22, uh, 6, verse 22, I'll read this to you. John 6, 22 says this, On the next day the crowds that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that at his disciples had gone away alone. And then verse 25 and following, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs. That is to say, not because you saw what I did and realized who I am. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, he continues, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you found a meal, and you're hungry again, and you want another meal. So he tells them, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Don't labor for food that perishes. Don't spend your energies chasing after that which you only have to go find more of because it's, it doesn't last. They missed the point of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They were focused on the bread that they had in their hands from Him rather than looking up from it to the one who performed this miracle, to the one who was God in the flesh in front of their eyes. As one pastor puts it, they saw Jesus as useful to meet their needs and their desires, but they failed to see Jesus as the treasure of their soul. I wonder if we took an honest look at our prayer life, would we be any different? Is Jesus useful to us to answer our prayers and give us what we want and make life easier and, and these things? Or... Are we seeking after Him because He's the greatest treasure of all? The miracle of the bread for the 5,000 was meant not to feed their bellies. It was meant to change their appetites. So instead of craving after bread, the miracle was meant to lead them to crave Jesus, 
the giver of the bread, the bread of life. Don't labor for food that perishes. Labor for what I will give you that endures to eternal life. Okay then, uh, give us this eternal life, this bread of eternal life. How can we have that? They ask him. Uh, and in John 6.32 we read this. Jesus then said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he makes that connection for us that we talked about a minute ago. Verse 33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they still don't understand. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of my friends, he says this. Jesus' miracle of multiplication and making all this food is not a dead-end street. His creative power was not to show them that God is mostly concerned about full stomachs, but forgiven souls. So He didn't come chiefly to offer people bread so that they might be satisfied for a few hours. He came to be bread. He came to be the bread of life. And through faith, we find Him to completely satisfy. This crowd, they ate the bread that He gave them. They filled their bellies. It didn't satisfy. We're only for a time, right? A few hours, next morning, need more. Not satisfied. Jesus came to be the bread that we take to ourselves and satisfies our souls. So as we close this morning, See this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And through it, don't just see, wow, if I get hungry, Jesus will meet my needs. Don't see that. Instead, behold the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the compassionate one, the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep, the Lord of glory, and the bread of life. And then heed the challenge of the Bible. And this will be my parting challenge to you. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him.